This is a Cultured Podcast production. Okay, it's our day off from working on the podcast. What should we do? I don't know what should we do. Hmm, I don't know either. Seth, do you have any ideas? Hmm, maybe we should all Netflix and chill. (laughs) That's funny because it's a cultural reference. Yes, I too love putting buzzwords in a podcast intro. Hmm, maybe let's watch the... Okay, let's drop the act. This is Culture, Episode 3, and it's on Netflix. What is culture, you ask? Well, it's a podcast that looks at society's behavioral patterns and examines why we act the way we do. We have a lot to get into on why everybody's favorite streaming service might not be all that great. We're addicted to Netflix, and the facts show it. Netflix reports that its subscribers spend two hours a day watching content on the streaming service. And it shows in their revenue numbers. The streaming service has a total of 130 million worldwide paid memberships and a yearly revenue of $15.7 billion. They've also become this sort of cultural iconoclast as well. I mean, there's Netflix and chill, putting on Netflix while people are doing chores, and you know, just keeping Netflix on in the background on a day-to-day basis. Netflix is not just Netflix anymore. It's outgrown this idea of being just a streaming service, and it's now a part of our culture. This might not be all good. Netflix is massively popular, and they go unchecked in the modern cancel culture that we live in today. We're addicted to it, and it's shaping our culture, but not always in a good way. When I set out to do some research to see if anybody else thought something was up with Netflix, I realized I wasn't alone. Todd Van Luling is a senior culture reporter for the Huffington Post, and he regularly reviews and writes about all things Netflix. I just felt like I should do some sort of pushback uh, on this company that's just sort of <laughs> increasingly dominating our lives and finding new ways to increase the time we spend on it uh, week to week. The headline for one of his articles, Why Netflix Should Scare You More Than It Already Does, kind of sums up his thoughts on the subject. In the piece, Van Luling even talks about a blog that Netflix runs where they just brag about how good they are at their marketing. They do things like... Having algorithms uh, show like 30 different promotional images for a show like Stranger Things to different users and A-B testing all those to see uh, which one clicks the most and which one clicks the most for certain different personality types that they're determining from all the data they're taking from you. It's... uh, uh, a super involved process they have now, um, which is very different from when I was first using the streaming platform, and it was just this ugly uh, shelf of DVDs, essentially. And even testing out which ones get the most clicks based on their personal data. So I might see one photo because I'm an 18 to 29-year-old white male from Long Island. And I might see something completely different because I'm an 18 to 29-year-old Afro-Latina woman from the Bronx. And... Todd says they're very open as to why they actually do that. It seems like their number one mission is just growth and um, how long people are actually using the service every week. And I don't know if optimizing your users for how long they're spending with a a platform, if that's necessarily the best for society. Hmm, who would have thought that binging a show might not actually be the best thing for you? 
And while zoning out with the office in the background isn't terrible, he also says that you have to keep in mind that your time is being eaten away by a super massive company when you do that. But like, so what? That's like how you run a business, right? Is it though? Well, my mom thinks that way. And yeah, I know, my mom's no expert source on the matter, but she does watch Netflix way too often. And we don't really see eye to eye on this subject of how Netflix runs their operations. But I guess I need to back up and cred check her first. She's a 57-year-old white woman from Long Island whose favorite genre on Netflix is international TV shows and films because she's watched so much on Netflix that she has now started to watch international TV shows and films and likes it better. I like to see how people um, from other cultures think about romance and drama and relationships. And it's very interesting because they really... uh, The people are highly characterized. For not being a critic, she's also really critical of some of the Netflix originals that are up on the streaming service. I find like some of them really garbagey, like like (laughs) junk, like like just define junk, like made to appeal to a certain audience who eats those things up. And the weird part is that she's totally self-aware of what Todd is describing, but she thinks there's no stopping Netflix marketing schemes in her eyes. It's designed to appeal to the tastes of the consumer. Netflix is a consumer-driven product, the whole thing. So what goes on there is what people want to watch and see. My mom, like the many we've talked with about the subject, doesn't see the bigger picture here. It's not just a business model. Netflix's business model is now a cultural model that we base ourselves off of. Netflix is the sole controller of what's on their streaming service, so they could pull the plug on great shows or throw money into keeping things like Friends on there, and ultimately you have no say in that decision. You might have read about a show called One Day at a Time on Netflix. Since Sid identifies as non-binary, I want to call them by a term that's more acceptable and inclusive. Oh, you know what I always thought was so cute? Better half. I don't want to call Sid half a person. (gasps) What if I tell people you're my better whole? (laughs) The show was really important in the sense that it featured a Latino family of immigrants and had non-binary characters in it, too. Netflix says it canceled the show because it didn't get enough viewers to sustain it, but it didn't offer numbers. We'll get into the numbers later of Netflix, but... Getting back to the show, if that were true that there weren't enough viewers, why would Sony Pictures Television be fielding calls from CBS All Access to pick up the show? They must see some major value in the stories that these characters can tell. So we ask ourselves, beyond Netflix, what are some other places where we can get a temperature for what our culture is about? And here to tell us more about this is our reporter, Sacerate. Since we're talking about culture and who defines it, we brainstormed a little and realized that I should definitely go to the 2019 New Directors New Films Festival hosted by the MoMA to see firsthand the kinds of movies that emerging filmmakers are making that define culture. The opening film of the night and the festival in general was Clemency by director Chionwe Chukwu. She did the usual, which was stand on the red carpet, take lots of pictures, smile big, and talk to the reporters and the cameras and host a panel discussion afterwards. Um, But there was one particular question during this panel discussion that stuck out to me that I wanted to share with y'all. And that was an audience member asked about her choice to use lots of close-ups, in particular, one close-up that she called compassionate. Uh, Because I really want to 
make audiences, force audiences to confront the humanities of these characters in an unapologetic, unflinching way. The film centers on the emotional struggles of an African-American female warden who's straight edge about the rules and doesn't bend for anybody. The problem is that there's an inmate on death row who nobody really knows whether or not they committed the crimes since it happened a decade prior. So when asked about her choices on where to play the camera, Chionwe Chukyu said, I think it's a radical, a beautifully radical decision to hold on a black woman's face for four minutes. So she, her face fills the entire screen. We just stay there. And the camera does not move. And I want us to see this black woman's humanity, to feel her. Um, and so often we, as black women in particular, are written off, are discarded, are invisible. And so that was my artistic choice to make sure that we are seen. Visibility is an important part of the movie and TV watching process. We want to see characters that show us different experience. And for the most part, Netflix has been a boon to the industry in this respect. However, they may be just as dated when it comes down to the monetary value they place on non-white, cisgendered stories. And I did start watching them for a while. That's Zenaida Mendez, director of the Manhattan Neighborhood Network's El Barrio Firehouse. She, along with other members of her network, boycotted Netflix after the comedian Monique claimed that they lowballed her by a wide margin. Uh, because, you know, I think that it should be standard for everyone to get paid the same. Because if they are invited to be on Netflix, that means that they have their audience. As an alternative to Netflix, Mendez turned to her monthly film club in a kind of weird reversal. Before, people used Netflix as a cheaper solution for keeping up with the Joneses. But now, some are being priced out and they're coming up with different alternatives. You know, most people cannot afford to pay, you know, the monthly time 95 or whatever. And, you know, so they, they say, you know, we're just going to get off and don't pay anything. And <laughs> that's what happened. Netflix has been raising its prices for the past few years in order to fund more original programming, so they say. Some of the shows include 13 Reasons Why, Bird Box, and Orange is the New Black. Its most popular plan raised from $10.99 to $12.99 in January for new users, while they rolled out the hike to existing users over the past three months. That's pretty much the cost of a matinee ticket at a movie theater in Manhattan. You might go to the movie once in a while, but not everybody can go to the movie every week, every month. So we have this film club, and all our film that we show is with associate just the content. It kind of sounds like Netflix and chill without the chill part. And without the exorbitant film licensing costs. And people are really into it. And actually, people, we missed one Friday, and people would show up. And <laughs> we say, oh, I'm sorry. We, we didn't even post it that we didn't have the film, because but people already know the first Friday of the month we have a film. But one movie a month doesn't cut it for most people. I have a lot of Netflix shows that I like binge watch and watch every day. And then sometimes I forget when they put new episodes up, a new season. So I'm like waiting every day, just looking to see if they put episodes up. Carla Mejia, a freelance filmmaker who's worked a bunch of gigs, including Netflix, has a pretty common experience while watching Netflix and has had shows she loved canceled out of thin air, like the ultra diverse UK comedy Bubblegum. Hey, Mr. Keys. Fucking renegade Honda Civic. Yes, yes, Honda Civic. Mercedes Benz. Mm-hmm. Nissan Micra. You're homeless. I'm so happy about it. I beg you, case, case, case. 
They can take the flyer. It was very interesting because from like a New York point of view, like we don't really get to see how they like go about their lives, which is really different. And I was really getting into it like the first season, second season, but the show was already like started years ago. But when I researched it, they said that it was already canceled and I was sad because it was a good thing. And that's only one of the examples. I think I experienced that three or four times, which is also really like heartbreaking because you get to fall in love with it. And then it's like, oh, okay, no more. And then the story just like goes away on your head. Like, that's it. But again, that's just them running their business, right? Okay, let's take this one step further. Netflix is massive. They control what people see. And now let's add in the fact that they don't release any data whatsoever on their viewership numbers. Not to Nielsen, not to the production companies that make the films, not to the directors or the actors. No one's getting the numbers in the situation except for Netflix. And this is where they get all that data to run crazy algorithms to have people thinking about watching their shows before they actually even watch them. And they're harvesting this data all to themselves and using it as a force of persuasion that's so advanced that people don't even know they're being duped. And what they're getting is all this data on what you're watching how long you watched it, when did you stop watching, and then their algorithm puts together more movies that you might enjoy based on this one movie you saw. So now you're quantifying and qualifying films. Christopher Campos is a 22-year-old filmmaker from Brooklyn who actually thinks Netflix and other streaming services like it are the future of film. He thinks that what they're doing with the information that they've collected is essentially just making a really smart way of getting people to watch their content. He talked about everyone's favorite Netflix show, Stranger Things, as an example. So you have all this information, and you use it, and you make your own content, right? You take this content, and you're like, hey, I think you might like this thing. Here you go. And then you have Stranger Things. I'm sure an executive, like, told him this. He's like, yo, pull up the numbers on nostalgia, 80s movies, and horror thrillers, uh, right? So you get this, this equation of kids in leading roles. So you have your kids in leading roles, it's the 80s, there's this monster, it's a sci-fi thriller. That's the perfect equation for success. But even pro-Netflix filmmakers like Gampos are conscious of the exclusiveness of Netflix. Okay, okay, okay. I think I'm getting it now. Netflix is huge, it's addictive, and they control what they want at the end of the day. They stream what makes them the most money and harvest all the data for the betterment of themselves. So what if they're using that data to make content for those people who don't really know any better? Yes, exactly. And because of that, they're essentially influencing culture more than the people in it actually are. Oh, I get it. They're telling us what's culturally important instead of us telling each other what's culturally relevant. Yep. They've essentially turned the concept of entertainment into social currency. Social currency? So think about when Bird Box came out. Listen to me. I'm only going to say this once. We are going on the trip now. It's going to be rough. It's going to be hard to stay alert. It's going to be even harder to be quiet, but you have to do both. Let's be real. The movie isn't that good, but it was the only thing that anybody would talk about for the next two weeks after it came out. I didn't see it, and because of it, I felt really out of the loop, and the people that did see it were in on some sort of inside joke that I didn't understand. Here's Carla again. And like I watched it and I was a part of that wave, but then there was a lot of memes that came out and people who didn't watch that, I'm sure they would feel, like they would feel left out. But thankfully I wasn't the left out point of view, but I could see why someone will feel that way. It's like when someone has a reaction when you tell them that you've never read the Harry Potter books or that you've never watched The Godfather or something like that. 
that it shows that they're somewhat more culturally relevant because you're missing out on something. So Netflix is promoting these TV shows and films that really shouldn't be glorified in the first place. Like, is 13 Reasons Why really that good for 13-year-olds to watch? Or for anybody to watch? No, it's not. Let's be real here. Clay, I know you're asking yourself why you're on these tapes. What could you possibly have done? My mom is a mental health therapist, and the first time I showed her one of the scenes from the show, she kind of flipped out. She was talking about why are people watching this show when these are cases that she's literally seen in real life. Yeah, my mom was a guidance counselor in high school for 30 plus years, and when I talked to her about it in our conversation about Netflix, she immediately jumped to the fact that it's not good for kids that age. But Netflix uses their own algorithms that they've developed based on their own secretive data just to get you to watch something so that they can make it a cultural movement and ultimately just make more money. To me, the problem with Netflix is very, very overwhelming. The amount of subpar content that exists on that platform and the techniques they use to lure you in are so, so, so scary. But thankfully, the solution is simple because unlike the Grammys, we, the consumers, are the solution to this problem. Netflix is made for the consumer. Yes, it's there to make a profit, but ultimately we're the ones that pay for a subscription and have the ability to change our viewing habits or unsubscribe altogether. Whatever you choose, it's your choice because you're the consumer. This is all ultimately made for you. The algorithms to suck you in or the endless options of TV shows and movies are for you. And you, the consumer, have the ability to make the conscious decision to turn off the TV. Today's episode was produced, written, and edited by myself, Catherine Hernandez, Tim Seberger, and Seth Serrate. And all the original music you heard today was composed by me, Tim Seberger. If you liked today's episode and want to hear more, make sure to subscribe to Culture wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to follow us on social media at Cultured Podcasts. And if you really like the sound of our voices, maybe you should tune into our radio show, Getting Cultured, a music talk radio show that we host ourselves Mondays at 6.30 on WBMB 94.3 and on BaruchRadio.com. This is a Cultured Podcast production.